Hi, welcome to Sweetman Podcast. I'm your host, I'm Simon Sweetman, and this is episode 127. And I had a chat with a guy called Ray Mercer, uh, who until fairly recently was a, was a well-known Wellington Council member. Um, but he's, he's been many things and continues to be many things. He uh, was a musician and is a musician and he had some, uh, some success early in life as a musician and went overseas to the UK where he learnt to be a guitar maker and, uh, and uh, repaired guitars and built guitars and, and did jobs for uh, some of his heroes and met some of the most famous people in music and worked with them and was offered to tour with some of them. So. Uh, he's got some amazing stories there. Then he returned to Wellington and got uh, very involved in conservation and environmental issues and activism. He reconnected with his Maori side. He uh, got involved in the community and through that uh, he got involved in local community and local government. And uh, and uh, he's, he has a wealth of stories. Now I first met Ray, oh, you know, uh, nearly 20 years ago. He was the first, I think, very first professional feature story that I, you know, was paid to write about. He, I had met him briefly through a friend and had found him to be, you know, a, a wonderful chap to talk to and obviously had this rich and interesting backstory. And so I suggested him for a feature when I was given a, a shot to write for the uh, the Evening Post. And um, that was the first feature that I did that I was paid for. So uh, we've bumped into each other over the years and reminded each other of that, that we, that we had that kind of connection and that, that's how we met. So I've been thinking about him as a as a podcast guest for a long time, and then uh, uh, finally we we got together. I went out to his house and sat down with him and 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 had this lovely chat. And I'm so glad that I did because uh, if you know Ray and you know some of his stories, you're going to be interested. And if you don't know anything about him, I think you're going to be quite blown away by uh, the things that he's done. There's a lot of uh, a lot of highs and a lot of sadness, a lot of lows, and uh, his his positivity, his his attitude. Is, uh, is inspiring and um, it was lovely to reconnect with him and I hope you enjoy hearing this this is me chatting with uh, with Ray Mercer I know a wee bit about you and, and, and what you've done uh, I, knew, I knew then from first meeting you and then obviously you've become more um, prominent more publicly known with, the, with and we'll get to that but um, yeah I I, I I think I'm right in knowing that you are basically a Wellingtonian. You're, mm-hmm. a, you're yes. a Wellington person. Absolutely. You've done some time away from Wellington, yeah, but no, you, you are a Wellingtonian. Absolutely. So, so tell me about your, your um, upbringing and where music first comes into your life, and we'll go from there. I will. Okay, then. Well, um, <clears throat> I was initially brought up in Petone. Mm-hmm. In fact, adjacent to that fabulous um, <clears throat> delicatessen entrees, mm-hmm. uh, the car park of entrees is where our house once was. Anyway, my father was British, Welshman, and he played guitar. My mother was a fantastic singer. She was She's the Māori component of my parentage. Mm-hmm. Let, me t- let me give you an example of how good my mother was. My mother could sing Ella Fitzgerald songs while she was vacuuming the house <laughs> with no backing, and as far as I was concerned, note perfect. Mm. Um, and she was a fantastic singer, and Dad played quite good rhythm guitar. Mm-hmm. So I guess I was infected early on with that. And we moved to Upper Hutt to a brand-new state house. And one of the, the cool things about that house was, well, first of all, we came from an old villa, and the toilet was down the back garden. 
Mm-hmm. That's only. Well, first of all, that, the only thing that counted for me was this thing <laughs> had an inside toilet. <laughs> I ran straight into this house. I was eight years old, and I asked my mother, "Where's the toilet?" And she, you know, I ran in. I looked at this varnished seat. Yeah. You know, as, as they had then, and and all these roomy doors and and beautiful wood on the floors. <laughs> you know, people trash state houses. Yeah. But I tell you what, that house was fantastic. Yeah, yeah. And so. Um, Trentham and Upper Hutt, where I went and did my school in there. Through that time, at family parties and that, the call would go out at some stage of a night, like a wedding or 21st, mm-hmm. for my mother to sing. Mm-hmm. And sometimes someone would get up and harmonise with her. And the jazzier sort of stuff, she did with no backing, because my father didn't know all those kind of chords. Um, but the straightforward stuff he backed her on, or she would just sing and she'd scat sing a bit, and some other Māori people generally would get up and, 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 and sort of add to the ambience. So that whole singing thing. Then they got involved in one of the the first wave of what's now called kapahaka um, concerts and things. Then it was called concert parties. Mm. So they were in a... They were with a bunch of people that formed a Māori concert party in Upper Hutt and were very successful. Anyway, so that's going on. However, around this time, there was a monumental event that happened to me. I was about 14, and the Beatles came to Wellington. I went to that concert. I came home on the train with a couple of mates. I couldn't sleep. I was dreaming all night and the devil took me to the crossroads. <laughs> and that devil, I mean, I'm making this up, listeners, but <laughs> the devil took me to the crossroads and he said, well, boy, you can go down this pathway over here, which is where your parents <laughs> want you to go. He said, he said, you probably, you might be smart enough to make a lot of money and do this and do that. He said, or you can come down the highway to hell with me. <laughs> he said, you'll have a lot of fun, you won't make any money. <laughs> but you'll have a lot of fun. And you didn't say, uh, and, and you and, didn't say what was that? No, no, and while I didn't use this expression <laughs> then that I will now, the devil kind of said to me, and I'm saying this frivolously, <laughs> listeners, Wine, woman, and song. Do you want to come down this road? It is the highway to hell. I said, I'm with you, devil, and I never went back. And I never went back. And so my academic uh, pathway at school plummeted and my music ability went the other way. So I started playing with school bands, then these kind of things. I'm not religious or anything, but church dances or the mm. local vicar would hold up you know, some Sunday afternoon gig. And then um, and moving through this quickly and then then playing for end-of-year functions for companies. Mm. You know, it could be the General Motors end-of-year Christmas party out at Trentham on the car assembly plant there. Mm. And um, we started getting hired for that. Then we got day jobs, and I, my first job um, in terms of salaried, as I get to working in a car factory, which I did for a little while, I worked with the old NZBC. Mm. And I went in there ostensibly as a cadet, a producer cadet. However, they were full up at the time, so they put me in Warren Taylor Street and then in Victoria Street, right where the library is, was where Carmen had the balcony. Mm-hmm. So I was in these TV, this TV fortress next to the balcony. And the band, we were at that stage starting to go away for the weekend, playing in Palmerston, anywhere that we could get to and leaving work at the end of the day and get there in three hours. Palmerston, Whanganui, mm. we started doing those gigs. And then we 
did some demo records. Now, this was in a day, of course, when you were absolutely discouraged from doing anything original. We were writing, even early on. No, no, it was not so much about copying so much as doing versions of other people's mm. songs, mm. which, of course, is, is, is an acceptable thing. Joe Cocker did it for years, mm. and Linda Ronstadt, it goes on and on. Mm. Um, but... Um, and so we did that, and we did these demos, and then we ended up making some records. And this is the old HMV studios that are now where the downtown ministry is, mm-hmm. right, um, not far from the Green Power. And um, we recorded there, and then it's okay. And then we, we did a recording of a song called Wait For Me, Marianne, which um, had some orchestral backing on it with Don Richardson, um, horn player and arranger, and uh, for the time, for its day, etc., wasn't really us, and I'll come to that in a minute, but nonetheless, it was a, it was a song recorded by the Marmalade, mm. but not released, as I understand it, by them. And um, so we did it, and suddenly um, there was some momentum, and we tossed in our day jobs, jumped in a van, and went up to TV in Auckland, and the song eventually got to number two in the New Zealand hit parade, as they called mm, it. Mm. But if I can go back a couple of steps, when my mother and father were off and away performing for the afternoon with their mm. concert party, I can remember going to the kitchen um, where we had the family radio, because that's where it was, because we ate in the kitchen. Mm, a lot of mm. stuff happened and cooked it. So that's where the radio was. Now, this radio, my father had this really good radio. And you could get um, BBC and things like that from the UK. It was a bit scratchy, but you could haul in these things. So I can remember one notable incident. When my parents went out, I knew what time the Beatles were coming on on BBC because it had been advertised. When I went down the road, I hit the buttons on the radio, tuned it in, all the crackling and all that, ran into my parents' bedroom where the guitar was, tied my father's dressing gown cord around it for a strap. And my mother, like many women of that time, had a dressing wardrobe thing with a full-length mirror. Mm. And I remember while the Beatles were playing in the kitchen, <laughs> I was standing with the old man's guitar in front of that mirror playing not exactly air guitar because I had a guitar. Mm. It was that guitar. And kind of miming to the Beatles in front of my mother's full-length mirror. And four and a half years later, we were number two to them. So that was my dream. It came Yeah, through. amazing. It was amazing. Yeah. And... Um, and you mentioned um, school grades going down and mm. musical ability going up. Mm. You know, you end up in this band that releases some material and mm. you go somewhere with it, But uh, and you talk about all the, the gigs and mm. things beforehand, but, you know, what was your process of getting good at playing? Like, what, oh, were, okay. you, were you the classic put the records on and yep. learn to play by ear to yeah, the Yeah, yeah that just, was exactly that. Very early on, it was hanging around a few boys at school that yeah. that were better at things than I was, and I asking, sucked it in real quick. Yeah, yeah sucked it in. But then it was listening to things and trying to figure it out. Yeah. And helped by, and I have to mention this guy's name, a f- the best teacher I ever had mm. is a guy who many Wellingtonians will know of called Lawton Patrick, who was the music head of music, ended up in his last years of his, his, his teaching career at Teachers Training College and did a lot of productions, choral singing. He would say to me, 
He would say to me sometimes at the end of a conventional music lesson, how's things going with the school band? I'd talk about this and that. I'd say, I'm struggling to try and work out the song. That guy, he would come over to this little rehearsal room we had at school. We had a piano in there. We had this crap record player. We'd stick that on. We'd put the track on and we'd listen to it and he'd go on the keyboard. He'd say, take it off a minute and he'd work a few things out and he said, now, of course, this is a keyboard, not a guitar, but this is where, this is how the changes are going like this. He's still alive, sadly with motor neuron disease, um, but he's a fantastic man and I've told him that to his face, yeah. best teacher I ever had. So a little bit of help there. I'd long gone past my father's abilities. My father... <laughs> I was going to ask you My father used to drop you, the corner yeah. of the newspaper when I was playing. I'd see out of the corner of my... He wouldn't ask me. He couldn't quite bring himself <laughs> to ask me. Yeah. I'd see it and he'd look at it and he'd try and see what I was doing. But then he asked me a few things. Yeah. And... Um, so learning was really by listening and, and then eventually going to concerts mm. and then but seeing even New Zealand bands that were already um, doing pretty good. So this is, I'm still at school, mm. but the bands come, it could, it could be um, Ray Columbus and them coming through. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. it could be things like that. Um, the Lardy Dars. Um, very early, they were a little bit older than me, Clive Coburn and, mm-hmm. and the Avengers and stuff like that. And of course, standing up the front and watching, watching just... And knowing you had, to, you had to get it straight away because they're going on to the next song in two mm. minutes' time. So you couldn't ask them to play that again. Mm. So you're really like a, a bit of blotting paper, just mm. absorbing it and sucking it in and then going home and sitting down and trying. Then my father bought me this fantastic electric guitar, um, secondhand, but something that knew was it was about a hundred pounds, and he paid his more than his week's wages, which was twenty five pounds, to get it for me. So I ended up with this fabulous guitar, mm. um, dodgy amplifiers, um, which was always the case in the early days in New Zealand. <laughs> you know, we couldn't get the American stuff. A few few people had them, but by and large, most of us in the Hutt Valley mm. and we had homemade or hand me downs mm. or, or things like that. You know, so equipment. As then drums was not so difficult. Drums was not so difficult, but guitar amplifiers were. And anyway, but we got through all that, and as I said, um, that that particular thing when miming to a Beatles record in my parents' bedroom with Dad's guitar, and I dreamed. And as I said, in a in a, uh, I feel quite comfortable saying the dream came true. Hmm. Um, the Beatles were at number one with something. And we were at number two with Wait For Me, Mary. Mm, that's and we ended up in the Locks and Gold Disc Awards, yeah. group award. We, we were uh, unsuccessful if, if one measures success by did you win the category. No, no but we were there. And um, the high-rearing tones wouldn't mind, if they were, anyone was ever listening to the, this podcast, <laughs> they wouldn't be mind saying this. But the night of the Gold Disc Awards, they were resident in Australia and they had um, rain and tears out. But they were over there and they weren't touring or anything like that because they couldn't because mm. they were in Australia. But they came back about two weeks before and on the night, to our absolute astonishment, we were the solid bet. Mm. And now it's horrifying tongues. We were in absolute disbelief. Now, it doesn't matter about the detail, but what happened was a week later we were both playing New Plymouth. We had this gig and they were somewhere else in town, and we were playing some fairly large venue, I don't know, it was about seven, eight hundred kids there, people there. 
about the beginning of our second set, the high revving tons turned up because they had about 30 people at their gig. Mm. So that kind of, that tells you something. I'm yeah. not sure what. Yeah, and, yeah. The, and, and if any of you guys are listening to that, you, you know it's true and, and no hard feelings. You guys <laughs> won the award. But when it came to the test. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, um, however, and then so playing, um, playing music in New Zealand terms successfully, we toured up and down this country. We, I can remember things, the South Island. South Island. There was a few good hot spots there in Christchurch and Dunedin, but I remember in the central South Island, after about a five, six hour drive from Picton on the way down to Gore or somewhere, pulled up at what was called a tea rooms, you know, now called a cafe or something, mm. food joint of some kind. We, we went in because, you know, yes, the head is bald now. The hair, different clothing, looked different. Sitting down, and I remember the the guy coming over to the table with an apron on. He said, look, I'm the proprietor of this establishment. Now, look, boys, I don't want any trouble, but I want you to leave. We're just sitting there waiting to be served. Now, that kind of stuff we encountered reasonably regularly in the South Island, not mm. the North Island, even mm. in rural sort of things. Because, you know, like up in places like the East Coast, you already had that whole history of show bands mm, and, mm, and mm. music and all that kind of stuff. Rotorua, you had that kind of show bandy, Howard Morrison kind of gig going on because of the tourism, even though it was a lot of it was cheesy. Um, you had you had a mm. percolating thing with music. So in the middle of the island, on the east coast, New Plymouth was always okay. Auckland was fine, of course, but when we hit this, when we hit the heartland, South Island. Mm. No, 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 we ran into a bit of trouble there. <laughs> we ran into a bit of trouble a few times. But, however, we, we survived, and, um, uh, and during that period I met a, um, at a, at a dance, I met a, a young woman who, who, who was to become my wife, and when we got married, uh, which was 72, um, I, I, just, I just wanted to do two things. I wanted to go and chance my hand in London playing, mm. and secondly, wanted to meet all my Welsh family. You know, who I'd never met. Dad had told me lots of stories, you know, and I'd never met any of them. So we went to the UK pretty much straight after we were married, a couple of weeks later. And it was, and I did end up playing with, mm. with two or three lots of British musicians. Really good, all original. The money was so bad we had to pay to play sometimes. Yeah, right. It, it, you know, it yeah. was terrible. It yeah. was terrible. And she earned, um, Better money than me, anyway. I was driving vans in London, and um, I was starting to feel after bashing my head for three years, and with good players and interesting music, but it was it wasn't happening. And then I met some guitar makers who were also guitar tech, so they didn't just make guitars; mm -hmm. they fixed, serviced other people's guitars. So um, I met them and a little thing started developing in my head. Then I went on holiday to America. With, with The two of us went to America in 75 while this was all going on. Mm. And I ended up by sheer accident within driving range one day of, um, you know, car driving range of the Martin Guitar Factory. So I remember I went there and it was a bit like the Beatles concert. It was an epiphany. Mm. I went around that factory. Mm. And I, 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 even today, they've got new buildings and it's all landscaped differently in Nazareth, same plant, but bigger and different. I reckon I could take you within two or three yards 
of when we came out of the factory and um, I stopped, I can remember stopping and looking back at the doors and I said to Chris, I reckon I could do that. Mm. As soon as we got back to London, I went through the high school night class kind of deal because there, no, there was no schools of guitar making or anything like that. And I found this one night class on a Friday night. And then the whole of London was the only one. And secondly, it was about an eight-minute walk from our flat. It's unbelievable mm. karma. Mm. So I went there and got to learn a few basic things. Came back to New Zealand to see our folks five years away. Um, you know, no, no uh, what do you call it, um, uh, phone calls were highly expensive, so you wrote mm. letters, aerograms, mm. right? So I came back to see them after five years and, and ended up playing in the Rocky Horror Show in the pit band with Dave Fraser, Dennis Mason, uh, Mark Hornibrook, and a very good drummer who's in France now uh, called Kevin Strange. Anyway, I played and we toured the country. So and, and from a getting well-paid point, it was fantastic. Mm. <laughs> it was great money. It was great players. And so, you know... That was all good, but I knew that wasn't going to last. It's a three-month gig. So I started writing letters to guitar makers that I'd, that I'd been to the library and read names and books and this and that and asked if I'd come work, hmm. work with them because they teach me stuff. And how I was, you know, in fact, I'd take not exactly no pay, but I'd prepare to just mm, very mm, basic pay. Mm. And I got a reply from an English guitar factory called Filed, F-Y-L-D-E who were the only English factory making guitars. They still are, I think, at the time. Anyway, we went back after the Rocky Horror Show. I went back to the UK. Worked at this place. They made great guitars. It was very difficult working conditions. And it was fairly hard-nosed atmosphere to do with the way the place was run. Very knowledgeable, the boss, but it was pretty hard-nosed. And at the time, too, um, he what I, uh, it's part of this picture, and I've, we're friends since then, a nice man, a decent guy, but he was going through a Scientology phase, mm -hmm. and that had its consequential sort of things in terms of the working environment and if mm. you wanted to offer different ideas, maybe, you know, you, they weren't acceptable and this and that. But the instruments are really good. But it was becoming difficult. I found it difficult working in that kind of environment. And I saw a job advertised down in London at a very prominent guitar repair workshop called Andy's in Denmark Street. So I drove down one day, did what amounted to a 20-minute interview, and they said, when can you start? And I'd been repairing guitars back here before I went back to uh, work at Fylde working for bigs and a few people. So I had a few skills under my belt and I was very careful. Things I didn't know, I asked or I telephoned people mm, overseas. Mm. I never screwed up on anything. But I knew I needed to upskill. So I went to the guitar factory, learned a lot about wood, machines. Then I went down to London and that's where this incredible journey took place of working for people like Led Zeppelin, um, mm. Roxy, I mean, all old school, listeners, some listeners would say, who are these people? Well, be that as it may, but Chrissy, Chrissy Hind in her early days, 
um, working working with her, the Stray Cats, when they were just emerging, just come over to London for the first time, they came in. I remember doing some work for Brian Setzer. Ozzy Osbourne coming in. Peter Green didn't talk, had a minder. He spoke for him. He just stood there. And um, so I ended up doing work for some of my musical idols. You saying doing work? You mean you rebuilt, fixed, repaired guitars for yeah, them? That's right. I did, did yeah, all their instruments. Yeah. And it was like the Wild West down there. Like mm. right in the middle of the West End. Mm. We were doing the most work in London, and most of the big names were, were coming to the shop. Mm. Um, and again, some of my colleagues from the time, in the unlikely event, but possible that they listen to this, I, I, I will nonetheless relate uh, what went down. <laughs> now, um, the English boys, they started work late. And it was frequent breaks and coffees and cigarettes. I wasn't smoking, but everyone nice was smoking cigarettes. I went in there early. Yeah. After the time I got the work done, within about seven weeks of being there, the boss asked me to come to shop foreman. And it was made as an announcement in front of all the guys. There was a bit of silence. And there was even more silence when um, Robert, one of Robert Plant's crew and Jimmy Page's crew came in because I'd, I'd, I'd fixed two really difficult jobs on guitars for both of them. The English boys wouldn't touch it because it was too hard and take too long. I did it. And then what happened, as well as being the shop foreman, some of these crews started coming. So, oh, we want to speak. I think he's Australian, the Australian <laughs> guy. You know, and, and, and I remember I remember Ozzy Osbourne calling me Digger. Yeah. He called me Digger, and I corrected him. I don't know how many times. Oh, you know what I mean, Digger. And he'd effing blind and all this, yeah. and Sharon would be with him before they had kids and all that. Ozzy would come in with his fur coat on, his eye makeup running down his face <laughs> in the middle of summer. It looked a bit sort of like a, a bad version of um, who's the guy? Um, Who's the guy that eats the chicken heads and all that? Alice Cooper. Uh, yeah. He looked. He looked like a sort of a. Yeah, it was all sort of pretty um, dramatic looking. <laughs> yeah. But so so I ended up in charge of the workshop, except for the owner who owned it. Yeah. And secondly, some people came in and it was very. Um, I kept. I, I kept it humble though. Yeah. So uh, no, we want the New Zealand guy to do this job. And so you know, the boys um, sucked that up. I guess. <laughs> and so things were going real. Now, unfortunately, what? So I was really, go, it was going great. I was earning great money, um, way double the average English wage because I worked hard mm. and the money was good. Mm. And the, the tickets to gigs and concerts, you know, and the after show parties, all that kind of stuff. And I don't want to over egg that, mm. but. It was exciting, is the word I would Oh, I, I would imagine as a, a person who grew up listening to these records and playing a guitar, just seeing someone in the flesh that, cl- you know, that close, let alone, you know, working on their particular it's guitar, r- going backstage at their show, just seeing the person it, is a rush, it, right? It was, and I'll come to a little story yeah. about backstage in a minute, mm. but during that period, oh, before I get on to where I was heading, mm. um... Led Zeppelin were doing a reunion, uh, were doing a tour. They hadn't toured for a while, so this is early 1980, mm-hmm. and they were going to be doing some warm-up gigs in Scandinavia. And I'd worked on a range of instruments for for them, and I got a call from them asking me would I be prepared to leave the workshop and go on tour and be Pages' guitar tech. 
first. Now, I have to say, I thought about this long and hard. Not that long, however, because there were two things that were, that were about to happen. One was my wife was becoming really sick and we didn't know what it was. Secondly, while I was doing a lot of repair work, I had a guitar making workshop in our, our flat in London. And I knew two things. That was all going to come to an end, the guitar making. Um, and secondly, my wife was getting sick and that was the, that was the deciding factor. There was no way I was going to leave her. And, and disappear for weeks or whatever it was going mm, to be, yeah. and her being sick. And so um, I turned it down, but I recommended um, one of the other guys in the workshop. He got the gig, but jumping ahead, and as everybody knows, uh, it was very short-lived that too because John Bonham died. Mm. And um, and my friend lost his gig, lost the gig anyway. So yeah. it was so, so it was kind of almost fortuitous. Yeah, yeah. And and so all this is going on, nonetheless, exciting, highly paid, in demand. Yeah. And then my wife got sick and died. And I floundered for a while. And I'm not going to go on about yeah, it except yeah. just acknowledge it. Floundered for quite a while. Yeah, you know, they all stuffed, lie in bed, staring at the ceiling. Could the workshop kept the space open for me, but I didn't want to get. I I had no energy. I'd go for long walks and not come home for hours. I had a couple of good Kiwi friends looking after me. It was great, great couple live up in Auckland, hmm. Barbara and Peter, and they were looking after me. But I was lost. Anyway, battled through it, and then decided, right, I don't want to live in this apartment now with all its memories mm. and this and that. I, I, maybe I should go back home and see if there's something there for me. Mm -hmm. And so I came back home and ended up working at Beggs and they um, they treated me really well and paid me almost as well as I was getting in England. And so sort of around those times, Simon, was I starting to meet a few of your demographic mm. at that time. I remember mm. people like Fran Walsh coming in when she had gumboots on and op shop coats with her <laughs> bass guitar, with her $50 bass guitar. Mm. People like Fran and different ones and, and Tui Tekka. And, you know, I'm just picking on people who were um, quite flamboyant and mm. out there. And, of course, all those days when in those Wellington bands, um, a lot of them were... Um, happening at Rocking Horse and those kind of bands and um, you know, there was lots of stuff at the Southern Cross was another place where there was good mm -hmm. gigs so it was, it was great and then I bought this house here at Breaker Bay got some guys to build me a workshop and then gave up my time at Beach Music Shop to work full time out here and um, that's when I came out to this wonderful area and became aware of this hideous environmental situation where every toilet in Wellington, mortuaries, hospitals, hotels, emptied into the sea. Your own musical playing is firmly on hold at this it point. It is. You, you're obviously playing a guitar and that you're make, you've been making them, fixing yeah, making them, so, you, them, so yeah. you're tinkering with them. Oh, yeah, it's still hands-on. Yeah, 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 exactly. So you can still play, but, yes, you're not, but you're not performing. No, I'm not performing. No, yeah. not as such. Yeah. I, I've done a 
I've, you know, I do the occasional gig now and again. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, and I don't mean just, um, you know, down the local cafe. So, no, yeah. no, I do some, I've done a few outside gigs up in Upper Hutt. Yeah. I played with Carol and um, been up at the Rotorua Blues Festival a few years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, you have this thing where it, it, it's a, comes and a goes bit like a match fitness thing, though, it I is, guess. Oh. That you, you, you very much, by, by virtue of that work, you've always kept your hand yes, in. Yes, yes. You know. Which is which is a different thing to playing on stage, but oh, but then you know, I guess that's an instinct absolutely. that no, you no, never no, quite lose no. as well. So um, and are we rec- are we yeah, still recording? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, yeah, we're talking about match fitness. Actually, yeah. is a good thing. Yeah, if I was going to regularly gig now, yeah, I would want to put in a good Some, month and a half. Yeah, yeah. hard work every yeah. day because we all have our standards. Yeah. And we don't have to kind of um, absolutely articulate where they start and finish. Yeah. But yet we all know. Yeah. Uh, and getting match fit. But I have no interest in getting match fit to play at two o'clock in the morning in a bar. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'm not into that yeah, kind yeah. of. No, no, yeah. I'll never be match fit for that yeah. again, being there, done that. Yeah. But. Um, so, 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 so you moved to Breaker Bay. So I moved to Breaker Bay and um, become aware of the uh, city's uh, main sewage outfall was here. Yeah. And everyone was disillusioned around here that lived here and said uh, it had been like it for 100 years and the councils, all councils had, had no interest in fixing it apart from maybe putting the pipe a bit further out to sea, et cetera, et cetera. So anyway, I got together with some mates here. It's after about seven or eight months. Mm. I mean, you know, and... Um, I mean, the beaches here covered in tampax, condoms, um, turds, Lyle Bay, everything, even waste from mortuaries and stuff, sluicings came out here. I was told about that by somebody. And so it was hideous. And um, not in front of my house, I have to add, but maybe a kilometre around the corner. So we got together and we formed this group called the Wellington Clean Water Campaign. We went out and organised public meetings over the next two and a half, three years, building up to a council election. It was pretty uh, full-on. It was meetings every week. It was newspapers. It was television, all that kind of stuff. And I particularly, my role in the campaign, apart from the obvious things to do with health issues, was there was a pass site around the corner that my great-grandmother's forebears had lived in. Hmm. And yet the pass site was, in a sense, awash with sewage. So... I took the very first Wellington claim to the tribunal, which was claim number 26. I think they're up to about 7,000 or something now, but it's the very first one for Wellington, and it was very early days against the Wellington City Council. And this was just before the elections. And anyway, to whiz through that, the mayor was dumped from office and half his council. Mm. The new mayor that came in, we had aligned ourselves with on the basis that he was going to preside over and show the leadership with our support to get something done about high-level sewage treatment. It took a few years to nut out sites and level of treatment, but we got through all that and then there was a construction and in 1998 the plant opened and we have the best sewage treatment in New Zealand, still in Wellington. It's what's called tertiary treatment. What goes into the pipe looks like a glass of water because I've got some in my fridge in a jar that the plant operators gave me. 20, it's 20 years this year, 2018, that it opened. Uh, I'll show you before you leave. A, uh, that glass of water, that jar of water, not glass, that jar of water, uh, it cost $156 million. No one talks about the cost now. No one talks about it. We've got the mm. best... We've got the best, highest level of treatment, and, we, and, and, and 
tragically and, and sadly, other parts of New Zealand, as we know, like Auckland, Phil Goff mm. knows. He's got to close Takapuna Beach. He's got to close this beach. He's mm. got to close there's about 20 beaches in Auckland that you can't mm. swim in at some days. Well, uh, except when there's sometimes a fault in the system here um, or there's some breakdown of a pump. Anyway, that all that activity... Um, there's a fair bit of a profile out of that, not just for myself, but for our group. Mm, mm. And then I was tapped on the shoulder to put my name into a by-election for Eastern Ward here. Mm. Um, there were 13 other candidates. I was the successful one. Mm. And I went into the council. Um, during this time, too, I had I'd learned to speak Māori. I had established um, a lot of links with my um, marae in the Wairarapa and other Māori people throughout the country was great. And um, What directly had led you to do that? I mean, it's always there. Yes. And you, you you'd said, you know, I know you've said you it. You mean the taha Māori side or the politics? Yeah, 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 yeah. Like, what, did you have, did you go through a process of thinking, there's a part of me I have not properly acknowledged, I, have, yeah, I, don't, exactly, I don't properly understand? Well, it was, it was probably more the acknowledgement thing. Mm. And like many of my demographic, and some still today, I was on the receiving end, particularly as a primary school kid, mm. of, of, well, I'll say it, being called a nigger at school. Mm-hmm. And because and, my sister and I, unbelievably, at our, at our primary school, not at Patoni, it was all very cool there, lots of people worked in the car factories, Fords, General Motors, Patoni, mm. so there were lots of people from the Pacific Islands, mm. lots of pe- Asian people, so it was quite a mission. But when I went to Upper Hutt Trentham, uh, my sister and I were the only two Māori kids in the school at that time. And uh, most kids were really good about mm. this stuff. Mm. But there was more than um, a small minority were racist, um, uh, what we now call racist, abusive, probably a better word to use, behaviour. So I clammed up on it, mm. on the Māori, you mm. know. And then at college, it wasn't so overt, but it was like the jokes. Did you hear the joke about the fat Māori guy that had the car with two bull tyres and it was all that kind of stuff. Mm. And... I used to shut up. I used to shut up because I was embarrassed and I didn't know how to handle it. And it wasn't until I lived in England and when the dawn raids were going on here with, against Pacific Islanders, particularly in Auckland, and New Zealanders coming through London were talking about this and I was in absolute disbelief about the stuff that was going on. And so that lit a slow-burning fuse. And then when I came out to this country to the Springbok tour and there was... Um, a strong view by many of the mm. activists that, yep, it's great that we're doing this stuff for black people in Africa, and we should do. But there's issues back here too. Mm-mm. And that's when I got drawn in, if you like, to people who were um, incredibly um, supportive, who were active, who were smart. And that's when I decided to learn to speak to them. And... Um, and then became active in my marae, and then we had the Wellington Clean Water Pan- Campaign with the Parsite and Wash with Sewage. Mm. So there was all those elements, to mm. answer your question, mm. all came into one pot. <laughs> and so um, I went through a very brief period, slightly fundamentalist about in my attitudes, not, not didn't practice that on people, but I got a little bit thing. It, brief, it, was, it was a matter of about six or eight months, and I... I saw the folly of that immediately, never to return to any kind of fundamentalism or cultural chauvinism again. Mm. And um, 
So I ended up through that profile, particularly with the Mullington Clean Water campaign, and then doing work with the little penguin colony around here and getting our um, citizens motivated to uh, help me and a couple of others do a lot of tree planting in the hills and on the beaches and the trees. They were pretty bare around here when we came here. And so that's when I was tapped on the shoulder. Mm. And as you know, um, I was in there for, um, well, five elections, and then I decided I wanted to get my life back as a some kind of practising artist mm. uh, or instrument maker. That word artist has these connotations about Well, it is your creativity. Yeah, see, I, I wanted to get back yeah. to my creative side. That's yeah. a good way. That's yeah. an excellent way of putting it. And also, I thought, if I want to play music again, I've had my time, I had a good run, mm. but I'd like to play music for fun, mm. with mates for fun. People you play well, play, play good yeah, stuff, yeah, yeah, play yeah. well, but play for fun. It's not yeah. It's not a career move. Yeah, yeah. It's not a career move. Yeah. So I'm sort of in that process now, um, and I left the council. I miss the direct involvement in the arts in terms of the city's um, hands-on with it, because mm. I was the arts portfolio leader for oh, nine years, I think mm. it was. And um, and met a lot of decent people at the council, I have to say, to a lot of excellent people from the humble through to those in the most senior positions, and I made some nice friendships with some of the politicians. You know, it's um, what what the devil never told me was when he took me down that road, however, <laughs> what he, 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 when he said he implied he was taking me into the, into the dark side, he never told me there's one dark room that's even darker than rock and roll. It's called <laughs> politics. It's called politics. Yeah. So, so um, but it was mostly a positive experience. Well, you said that you were shoulder tapped. Yes. D- does that mean what it implies, that you would have never put your name forward yourself? I don't know. That's a very good question. I don't know. Maybe at a forthcoming election, I might have. Mm. I'll just say I might have. But certainly there was an urgency because a city council was leaving the council mm-hmm. in the middle of a term yeah. to, because she'd been elected to parliament. And um, so I initially declined. Mm. No, no. And then... A few of my mates and a few people active in the environmental movement in Wellington and Eco and Forest and Bird and those kind of people. And, um, and um, I started getting phone calls and people knocking on the door saying, right, you should think about this. Anyway, I, I buckled and went in. Mm. And people say to me, I bet you're glad you're out of there. <laughs> no, no, I, I, I don't have that viewpoint that I'm glad I'm out. I'm glad only in so far as... At this stage of where I'm at in my life, and, and I'm not intending to be Methuselah, you know, times there's, there's less time in front of me than there is behind me. Yeah. So I think, okay, so what do I want to do? I want to get back in my creative side, number one. Number two, I want to play music for fun. Number three, I had some very good talks with Celia Lashley long before she died, and before she knew she was going to die. And I said to her, when I'm out of politics, she, I'd like to find some way of making a contribution and helping some at-risk boys. And I said, I'm talking about that demograph between college boys, basically, mm-hmm. not, not little toddlers, not little kids. There's enough people who got their hands over that one. But I think, well, there are issues for many. That, you know, there's, there's a lot of fragmentation of families. It's not the only issue, and I'm not implying that particularly mothers who bring up sons on their own by far the majority do a fantastic job mm. but that doesn't help and even with two parents sometimes and I just feel um, there's been a lot of roads I've uh, walked down driven down mostly good things in my life occasionally some not so good things 
I feel that I could be helpful, um, helpful in, in what appears to be a gap where I think there's room for many men, not just me, to be able to make a better contribution to helping boys with the struggle through their puberty and stuff like that. Um, it was much more framed up when I was a kid. It was much more rigid, the, the, the family stuff and the expectations. You went and got a job in a government department. You had it for life and all that. You pretty much had to behave yourself and this and that and everything else. But for a range of reasons, it's 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 clear that there's a lot of boys. And Celia Lashley has written books on it, and mm. she's done a, I think she's done a CD on it that she did before she died. When I spoke to her, she, 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 I remember the first thing she said to me. She said to me, Ray, when can you start? Mm. We need you in there. Now, that, that's that's for the future to decide, both those questions going in and, and how helpful. But I guess I'm thinking about it a lot at the moment, and I guess the, the, the particular angle I want to come at with boys, there's not time to tell them what to do. It's just, just a waste of time, that is. Yeah. It's still about consequences. So, okay. If you're going to behave like this or if you do this, let me tell you almost absolutely what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. If you go around the corner on the wrong side of the road in the car, whooping it up with your mates and thinking you're a daredevil, let me tell you about head-on collisions. I said, so consequences and the old, you know, we know, Simon, us guys, we know the old frontal lobe in men, according to those who know better than us, it doesn't join up properly with guys to learn their late 20s. Girls, girls have got it sorted much earlier, by and large, about consequences. Boys, um, there's a whole range of factors yeah. in there. But I've done a few talks with boys at some of the colleges before I thought of doing this, where some of the um, teachers have got me in to talk to a boys' class about this and that. And that, that's such, that sowed the germ of mm. seed before I knew knew about Celia. Mm-mm. Before, and, but I thought oh, I'm going to go and talk to her and just put some of my thoughts to her. So as I've just told you, mm. she says, "When can you start?" And I would love to have. Um, had her help me formulate a program, but she she became ter- terminally uh, ill, and we know, and she died. Um, but that's not going to prevent me from. I'm not ready at the moment, but I want to do some stuff there. So mm. so post council, creativity, music, and also being able to um, sit, sit in bed and read the paper at nine o'clock, not nine o'clock, <laughs> eight o'clock in the morning with a dog on each side of me snoring mm. while mm. I'm having a cup of tea. I um, it's fantastic. Yeah, because you, you haven't had that <laughs> And for I go so for long. walks now. No, I go yeah. for, I ring up mates and say, should we do a coffee? Mm. And, and there's no, the diary's pretty much empty. Mm. But having, and, but but lately the diary is getting a bit more full because I've accepted um, and been elected to a role as, as a chairman of the board of Orchestra Wellington. And I've also, Sue Elliott's um, Sculpture Trust, has, I'm, I've trustee on that now. So, and I'm glad to be able to hopefully contribute some of the, Outcomes of my experience in the arts with mm. both those structures. Where did the? That's an interesting thing we should talk about. Where did the sculpture and art, I guess art in general, um, interest of fixation for you oh. come about? Because I mean, you've got a prominent sculpture in your front yard, and yep. that's been there as long as I've that's known right. you. And that was when we came into that housing um, story. Yep. That was a feature of it. Yes. Yes. Well, well, how it's come about is primarily. Apart from, like many, but not all people, a sort of an interest in, mm. in these things and the classical disciplines, um, you know, I'm from a rock and roll background, but as I said, it's gone from Chuck Berry to Brahms mm. at the moment now, mm. in, a, in a very simplistic, humorous way. Mm. 
But it was my time at the council when it became part of my job to re- interrelate with these organisations mm, mm. and with arts people from all types of art. And like Toy Ponick here, the art complex in Abel Smith Street, Kerry Prendergast and I um, got our heads together on that and that was a result of uh, of getting that getting that sorted there for artists. And that was a result of when Caro Drive was still being talked about but no action, all those dingy derelict shops and backstreet places and Tonks Avenue and all those places which were all on a hold for development because no one knew what was happening mm. with that drive. So 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 property owners let the places run down and so they couldn't charge high rents. So half my mates that played in bands and artists and this and that, they were all living in these dingy, damp places all in Upper Cuba Street, Mount Cook and all mm. around there. And as soon as the announcement went through that it was going to happen and certain parts were going to get bulldozed and down, then suddenly the council started getting flooded with cries for help. We can't afford a commercial rent. Can the council help us? So Kerry and I got sorted on... Um, on a, a concept of, okay, it's going to be expensive to build studios and it's going to be a bit tricky getting that through politically at that stage, which is 15 years ago, I think, yeah, 14 years ago. Um, so there were two ex-education department buildings that were available for rent. So we uh, put that through, rammed it through council, mm. cost us a million to outfit it, cost the council, the ratepayers, a million into a whole lot of studios, and if there's, if there's one with difficulty, art endeavour that, that I had direct involvement with, if I had to pick one, that toy pornic has been an outstanding success. Outstanding. You know, um, first of all, subsidised rent. Secondly, really clean um, rooms and studios. Thirdly, we've got a great city council crew in there who run the place. Um, and then fourthly, the outcome was... The ecology and the DNA of a lot of people in their different disciplines was people meet each other when they're going for a coffee mm, or when they're mm. walking through the door. So you've got this this hum and this hive of stuff going on. So your question about my interest in those other things, mm. I mean, I struggled with opera for a long time. I, mm. I, I, I couldn't get my, my brain past the banality of it. Mm-hmm. I, I, I just thought it was so ridiculously silly. Yeah. And, and then as time wore on, people said, no, you've got to let yourself open, you've got to open up to this way. I said, yeah, I'm trying I'm trying well it's a bit like you going back and learning today isn't it yeah. it's, it's a it's it's a language to learn that's it's, right it's, it was a language and so I I, I really enjoyed it yeah. yeah. same as the ballet yeah uh, ballet was not so difficult dance and movement you know mm. um, um, and classical music um, again was something was more to do with I didn't un- understand a lot of the history and the and the whole background to a lot of the pieces, it was like going in and listening to stuff and not knowing its history and what was happening politically mm, in those mm. countries at the time and, and and the different things that came up, you know, and an easy, simplistic one is like the 1812 Overture and that whole thing to do with, um, you know, um, France and England mm. and, and, and those wars and the everlasting conflicts and, that, and all that stuff. And um, oh, I've got to tell you a quick thing. A mate of mine's got a fancy turntable. One of these things that I oh, know costs about twenty five thousand dollars if you buy one mm, now. Mm. And someone bought a um, a vinyl 
obviously vinyl because it was for a turn take, brought this round to his fancy wreck. Mm. The 1812, when the cannons went off, they blew the arm right off the off the vinyl. <laughs> and this guy, you know, he spent thousands on this thing, couldn't handle the bottom end. Anyway, that's a whole other story. That's a whole other story. But 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 it was through my work at the council was specifically mm. was my involvement there. And then having to um, um, meet with and talk about the council's arts strategy, not just for people's interest, but mm. in fact of how, how, how to raise money, how to get some of those kind of conservative but liberal people which are bound in Wellington. They might look conservative with their dress, mm. but up here... It's actually quite liberal, mm. you know. There's and and the sort of people that was that would say to me after the talk, right? My wife and I would like to help. We would like to give some money towards this particular project. We don't need to have our money, our name rather. Mm. We don't need to have our name on a plaque or in a book. Some did. Did some not so much ask it? Some we asked. We said, look, we'd, yeah. we'd like you mentioned in the program, and some said that would be nice. Thank you. Right? Yeah. Others said. Please don't. We just want to help. Yeah, yeah. And well, and, and I was frequently astounded and impressed by people, some of whom come from a, a political zone that's not my home, if you get. Now, listeners mm. may know or may not know, and it's not of any great consequence to me nowadays, but I come from a socialist left-wing background. And, um, however, um, I, um, I, hopefully, I... I believe myself to be a fairly centred person, I've worked with very good people from the hard right. And I've worked with some less than nice people from the left. Mm-hmm. So, you know, between those points, so I find the par- this left-right paradigm, mm. while it may be indicative about someone's, the way they live their lives, I've found at the council yep. that it's not... You can't rely. On, I've met some. Very, I've met decent people from all sorts of political mm-hmm. persuasions, all sorts. I think it's important you say that. Actually, I feel like one of the most frustrating aspects of the conversation that's going on politically at the moment is that an announcement or a or, or a um, a prediction around someone's overt leaning, either left or right is ultimately the beginning and end of the conversation, That's unfortunately. Right. Preci- so, you know, it's nice to hear that. I, that you, I, I, precise, you know, I, pre- I precisely agree with that. Yeah. In fact, um, I was asked by uh, senior council staff to have a talk to the new influx of councillors mm. um, as part of the induction process at the last elections 18 months ago. And... Um, that's one of the things I talked about. I mean, I talked uh, ostensibly. The, the the talk was about life as a counsellor. Mm. What's a, pick on some things now? Of course, staff knew. I am I am going to tell a little bit of a sort of a, a behind the doors uh, story here. Is staff knew that, um, and I always tried to be um, absolutely supportive to staff when they were being harassed by a counsellor either behind the scenes or even worse, publicly, because we have a code of conduct and implicitly says you've got to treat people um, respectfully mm-hmm. if you disagree with them. So, I, uh, and I always uh, stood up uh, for staff who couldn't often stand up when a counsellor maybe made a staff member cry but by, by interrogative questioning that was sarcastic and this and that. I would interrupt, which I was entitled to do under code of conduct. Anyway, they asked me to come in and talk to 
council is would I didn't tell me what to say I'll say what I want to say mm. but would I address those issues with new because there had been there had been some um, some unsavory episodes from a minority of councillors to do with that stuff anyway right at the end of my talk I came to this whole left right thing and mm. as I, I'm just repeating what I said before I said look I want to talk about this left-right paradigm, and I talked to them, and I said, um, I believe after 16 years you would be making a mistake if you were to consider that someone's verbal contributions or written contributions, either a citizen, a manager, or even another councillor, were you know, it was, it was all conditional upon whether they were perceived or you'd been told whether they came from the left or the right. I said, because I have worked with, and I went through, mm. didn't name names, but there were some people here in this town who were reviled even by a lot of the centre-right, and uh, not reviled, who were um, critical of some of the, even some of the conservative mm. people, critical, same as there was on the left. And I always um, made it a point even with people whose whole, whole where they were coming from was totally foreign to me, was often what I would do, um, and I've never talked about this. In fact, this is probably the first time I've talked about it. I would ring them up. I'd call them and I'd ask them to meet with outside of council um, in a non-public environment, just sit down, have a glass of wine or a cup of coffee and say, can you tell me why you believe this? And can you explain to me? Because I don't understand why you think like you do. Yeah. And I said, I've got to tell you, that approach paid dividends time and time again. And um, and it was a real lesson for me. The same as there were some people on the left who believed in front of a vote, in front of a discussion or a preparatory paper by staff, that I was just going to vote a certain way mm. because that was that was the left-wing way. Now, I was clear... I was, mostly always influenced by my background. I'm not trying to say I dumped it. But there were occasions, not many, when I knew that taking that position was unfair and wrong. And it was totally disrespectful to the work and the submissions that had gone in to give us the detail and the background before we put our hands up to say yes or no uh, on something. And I wasn't just going to say yes because another eight people around the table were automatically going to, or some were going to automatically say no. Mm. no and, and so I told this, you know, I expressed this to the councillors and I said, you know, at best it's indicative about where someone's coming from. You know, oh, some say he's left wing or she's left wing or she's a lefty or she used to be in the Labour Party or whatever. Um, it's indicative, gives you good indication, mm, in fact. Mm, mm. But I have learnt, I have learnt it does not tell the whole story. Mm, mm. And that's and my it, advice to it's, them. It, it seems to me uh, disingenuous to believe that a person would pin their colours entirely to the mast. That's right. For across the board for every issue. Oh, you know, to, to 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 essentially say in in this day and age to essentially say I'm left wing, so therefore I am aiming to the left. On every single issue that you could possibly bring up, seems strange to me. Um, you know, or, or right, either or, right. whichever. And 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 yet, I feel like, if anything, that's happening 
a lot and or that's how people are perceiving others mm. and that really makes the conversation a complete non-starter. Oh, it does make it a non and it is disingenuous mm. and, and if I use one example and I'll go into it just simply mm. um, to, to illustrate what I'm talking about. We, had, we came to a point at the council early on when I was in the council where the issue of the downtown levy levied on um, mostly CBD and branching out into the streets of a levy um, to um, an, an extra payment on their commercial rates. And the left-wing view, and I'm going to be simplistic here before anyone jumps on the phone and says, oh, you've got that wrong. The left-wing view was they can pass it off on their taxes or they can do it, and they say, oh, they're rich, they've got plenty, mm. they can mm. afford it. Mm. And I'll tell you what, and I went along with that viewpoint for a while, I have to say. I went along with that, um, I think the first time it was voted on, and when it came up again on a financial thing, and where it was pointed out to me um, by some highly knowledgeable people about how unfair that was, in straight monetary terms, how unfair it was, and people couldn't always just absorb it or pass it off mm. through the thing. And then I started getting rings from a few businesses one was a, um, a woodworker who had a, a house inside the zone where the levy was. Worked in the house, didn't make a lot of noise, didn't do that. But because he was a woodworker at home, he was going to be having to pay this rate. Mm. And yet, if, if you looked at the outside of the place, apart from a, a, a few buckets with sawdust in here and there, you wouldn't know. And, 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 and this was a humble guy. Mm. And he went and said, Ray, this is going to kill me. This is so unfair. So... I went back to the mathematicians and the, and, and the money heads and the accountants and all that at the council. I said, I want you to take me through this top to bottom again. I want to really understand this. And I came out of there. And I came out of there with two other people. Three of us went in, three politicians, um, a centre-right person and another left-wing person. Now, to go to the end of that story, that left-wing person said to me, I know it's unfair, Ray, but I'm still going to vote that they have to pay it. And I found that appalling. Mm. Right? I found that appalling. And, of course, when it came to the vote, the chamber was flooded with people, um, many, not much, but many people I knew that had done good work on the left from the unions and stuff. Decent people, but they had this very fixed view. And I was one of the turning votes that voted to, we're going to start changing this formula about mm. how much they have to pay. Well... I had abusive phone calls. I had um, snidey comments at the supermarkets. Now, it was hurtful. It was upsetting, in a way, but I steeled myself. Like, well, I walked into this place with my eyes open and I felt ethically secure. Mm. But our life isn't always governed by our, eth you know, our ethical um, um, considerations. It's mm. just the normal stuff. And if someone calls you a treacherous wanker in the street or something like that. I developed skills to combat it, and it didn't last for long. That's mm, the good news. Mm, it didn't last for long. Mm. But a bit of that stuff. So that's an example where, where um, as I said to people, don't. I'm really advising. It was the last thing I talked about. So when they walked out, that was it. My talk was over. I said, I really want to stress to you that um, you should be careful. You need to listen to the evidence. And you need to you need to make your decisions accordingly. And I said, and I'll leave you with one final thought. I said, a very good political mentor of mine, 
The night I was first elected in 2000, he rang me up to congratulate me, and we had a long talk. Now, let me tell you what he said to me, and I'm going to now repeat it to you guys. He said to me, Raymond, he said, you're going to find yourself in a bit of pressure now and again, particularly to do with your political background. He said, where everything is screaming at you to vote a certain way, but in your heart, you know it's wrong. He said, I want you to keep these words in your mind. He said, use this expression, full background, what is fair, not what is perfect. What is fair? And I said, in that example, I talked about the down to leave was patiently yeah. unfair. Yeah. Yeah. So that's um, it's kind of a bit of my story. You've, um, in your lifetime of being a Wellingtonian and your nearly 20 years of service in the council and your... Um, now new and your background as a performer mm. and connection to other performers mm. and now your new appointment with the orchestra uh, what can you say what can you speak to around um, Wellington's cultural identity this coolest little capital yep. the arts capital of the do you feel that's taken a, a knock the last few years okay well I'll answer that in two parts. Yeah. First of all, um, the fact that there's a massive amount of reality to the arts and cultural capital, I'll use this word brand, bit of a cliche, but let's yeah. use that brand. And of course, listeners will be, um, many will be aware that there was arts going on in the city for a long time yeah. before I was a councillor or before a bunch of us who were councillors decided to take this up a notch, but it was during my time in council when a political decision was made by the majority of us that our point of difference in this city was going to be the arts and cultural capital. So it was a deliberate, intended thing. Of course there were things going on here, mm. and of course in other parts of the country there's things going on, but we weren't just going to talk it, we wanted to walk it, and that meant to a large extent money, support, obvious support, um, making life easy for people to get into venues, um, this and that, um, talking it up and welping, welcoming people with entrepreneurial spirit and encouraging our citizens who may not be practitioners, encouraging them to become part of this in some kind of way of their choosing, whether it's as an audience person, whether it's helping with finances or money or people that are in the know with building companies and things that say, hey, we can help with that, mm. we can help with this. So it's all that. Now, so we built on that and we walked it and we pushed it out hard and it's been very successful. Has it taken a knock? Well, if we if we measure that those words by saying, have other people lifted their game? Mm-hmm. Not so much have we dropped yeah. our game. Have other people? Yes, they have lifted yeah. their game. Some of our best people, people that we trained in art festivals and as art directors or or, or, or um, artistic directors or, or, or people that work with um, infrastructural things to do with the arts that we train down here, yeah. they all got to Auckland or here and there, yeah. and, there. and it's great because because we're all in it together at the end of the day. So. First, so the first thing about that is yes, other people have lifted their game yeah. hugely, um, and we have we've had to. First of all, I recognise it, and 
your question, right? so you understand that, mm. and so do a lot of people in the arts. And so, uh, I mean, today I was, a meet- I was at a meeting with some people who are prominent in an arts activity that's coming up um, next year, and we were talking about exactly this thing and how keeping on having to sharpen the pencil, so to speak, mm. you know, uh, you know and, and do that and do that and do that. And, and the um, thing that doing the same old thing well and he gets you by for a while. Mm-hmm. And let's talk about like, outside stuff. As an example, uh, before I left council, I involved with some excellent staff on an activity called Recut. You know about that? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah right. And, and, and it's still developing. But, yeah. but the, the idea was we wanted, to bring, we wanted to bring some artistic expression, performance I'm talking about, um, into the streets occasionally, but the old days of just sticking, like they do uh, at my Auckland brothers and sisters, backing a truck up in Aotea Square and sticking a band on the back, hmm. well, that's okay, but it's old school, it's old hat, and I know they have slightly more reliable weather than us sometimes, <laughs> yeah. but down here, trucks, or just getting people with amps and extension cords on, on corners like Stuart Dawson's Corner or this or that, hmm. yeah, but I... One of our officers, um, a really good guy who used to play in the symphony orchestra, in fact, David Daniela, he came up with this idea of doing some something that was far more um, flamboyant and hard-hitting. So these were the sort of words being used that wasn't going to be out on a Friday night, maybe starting at half past five and it's all over by six, mm-hmm. uh, six, half past six, seven, but highly visual stuff, quite a... A Polynesian content to some of it, mm. Pacifica and/or Maori, and and to do stuff and not do mass deliberately. I found this hard to accept at first. Not do massive publicity on it. It was more or less mm. kind of, like, not exactly of the underground. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. That now they've had three of them. It was a, it was a pretty cold night. The last one um, a few weeks ago. But there they had a Malia Hall, you know, the, the, the first violinist from Orchestra Wellington. Mm. Young, it's fantastic player, right out there, flamboyant. And here she was in the middle of Civic Square, surrounded by hundreds of people. She was cold, but she had the great, she looked great. She had David's electric violin, and she was playing some highly flamboyant but difficult technical piece, but she was like a rock guitarist getting into yeah, it. Yeah. And, and people, and I thought, and Lots of people from all walks of life, families, because it was mm. early enough, mm. and people was even though it was a classical discipline, in absolute silence while she was playing, and because the lights hit her and this and that. Now I'm just saying that as an example of a um, her performance, as an example of the recut performance, and recut being an example of you know there's things to do with it still, and this and that of something that that's just that's. We think much more sideways in Wellington in many ways. Even when we hit snags or even we slow down, almost get into neutral gear sometimes, we find another gear often. And, of course, Simon, you and I talked about the whole venue thing, and that's for another yeah. discussion. Yeah, yeah. Out for, for, for rock gigs, using yeah. that phrase generously. Um, and um, But so in Wellington here, lifting our, lifting our game, um, tuning things in, and I hope to be able to continue to be helpful to arts stuff in this town, even though I'm politically not in the middle of it. But that doesn't mean so you can't still be active and do stuff. Yeah, yeah. And so that's one of the reasons why I very gratefully accepted a role in Orchestra Wellington and with the Sculpture Trust and still work with the City Council Arts team to 
to um, give a viewpoint um, or make a contribution, and mm. that's why I live in the city. New Zealand's the most liberal city. This city is. And it's easy to meet good people in this town. You you meet good people. These art openings, these concerts, these this, these that. You meet good people really easily in this town. And it's because of that whole compact thing too. We we we, bump, we all bump into each other a lot. People are helpful, even across disciplines. People who help each other. And so. Um, I find all that. I mean, if it was eight degrees warmer, it would be the perfect place to live. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, um, but 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 I can, you know, not not how we got whales in the harbour. So you know, at the moment, all yeah. the whales. So you know, and we got penguins that come up my driveway. And while I'm being frivolous about both those things, it's pretty cool. Yeah. And I tell my friends in Manhattan when I ring them up and they, I say, "What's going on down the street?" And one of them will put the phone out the window and I'll hear. And I'll hear the sounds of that great city, that great sleeping dragon. And, and he says to me, what's going on outside your place? And I said, well, I'm just watching some orcas swim past. Mm. So, so, you know, it's... It, it, it's, yeah. it's um, so I... I um, it's, it's fantastic in this town. I, um, I think I'll die in this town, and I think I'll die in this house. You were going to tell me a backstage story. And I um, was thinking that how you, you obviously have more than one. Um, I'm trying to remember what it was now. <laughs> exactly, exactly, exactly. But mm. but I was just thinking, if you were, and I don't know if you've thought about this, but if you were to write a book based on your life and some of the things that you have, and I'm sure you've been asked about Two it. people have asked me recently. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> You must have some, you know. You you've already mentioned what what a thrill it was to be, I guess, young in your trade as a guitar tech and maker and repairer, and just seeing these people come in. Oh, my idols! Were coming your to, idols. They wanted me and to help. Them. I was just going to say, and they needed your help, like yeah. just to see them as something, it and was, then it to was actually. Fantastic. So I wonder if we've, you know, unless there's anything else you wanted to talk about, I wonder if you had uh, a story or two around that or well, there, back there is, towards there, there music. There is one. There's, yeah. many, there's many. Yeah. Maybe it'll, maybe it'll all come out one day. But yeah. there's one which is not quite so easy to tell in terms of a recorded thing as yeah. against if there was an audience and I could do the facial gestures. Okay, so the Stray Cats had just arrived in London mm. and my, my memory of the story of them was Keith Richards saw them somewhere in, in, in New Jersey or New York or something and asked them to come over to London. So they just arrived and they were hot at the time, you know. And um, anyway, we, uh, there was a phone call um, from my road crew person from another band that I knew who rung me at the shop and said, well, I've got the Stray Cats and you know about these guys? I said, I've, I've, seen him on TV, heard about them, but he said, well, there's some issues with the bass player's string bass, and there's a little bit of an issue with the guitar player's um, guitar. Uh, he said, can we come in at so and so time? I said, great, I'll make sure I'm not out having a cup of tea, I'll make sure I'm here. Anyway, the time came, and the workshop was an underground workshop that was the basement kitchen of what was a grand old hotel. Mm. So we had stairs coming down, and my workbench happened to be right near the stairs, and I heard the sound, which I knew and proved to be true, was the sound of stiletto heels coming down the stairs, that particular sound that they make. And then there was the fishnet stocking legs, 
And then was this glamorous woman who happened to be near the end of her career as a film star. It was Britt Eklund. Had been married to Peter Sellers, but she had hooked up with the drummer. I don't care about people's ages and relationships, but he happened to be 1920. She was thinking, so it was all interesting and great. And she had the fur coat on, the hair up, incredibly glamorous, the stilettos, all the stuff. And she comes in, and the guys start talking to me. And they've got the guitar on the counter, and the bass player's got the bass here, he's trying to show me. The drummer is just standing behind the two guys. Slim Jim Phantom or something mm-hmm. like that he was called. And she's standing here with her arms folded and she's saying, how long do we have to stay in this place? <laughs> and she's turning her nose up. I mean, it was an underground workshop. There's guys in there, there's light and there's heat in there. In there. This, 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 wasn't, this, wasn't a, this wasn't a sweet-smelling chemist shop somewhere. Mm. How long do we have to stay there? And she kept on complaining. And, the, and, and, and um, Brian Setzer... He's, he's, he's in front of her, and as she's moaning and carrying on, he's looking at me, he's rolling his eyes towards the <laughs> ceiling, and he's just rolling his eyes, and he's, oh, he's going, oh, and he's trying to talk to me about his father, when are we going from this place? Because uh, she's Swedish, so she had a strong, mm. you know, in a film she spoke with a, quite an English mm. accent, but normally she had quite a strong mm. Swedish accent. So she's there, she, she had her hands tucked under her arms as if she was going to ca- get contagious cholera or something like that. <laughs> um, yeah, she was used to more grander surroundings. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's probably living in a Tivoli hotel in London or something, but she was a rock and roll crew, and of course they brought her down. And um, and the poor guy, the drummer guy, because he, he, he was... Uh, What's that all express? Smitten. Mm. He was absolutely smitten with her and, and um, fine, it's all good. But she played up like hell. <laughs> and um, and um, and as a Brian sets her looking at me in the face, I am rolling his eyes up and oh my god, how, <laughs> how, how, why the hell did she have to come down here with us? Mm. Anyway, so that's one of my stories. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty good. Um, it's been it's been a great pleasure catching up with you, mm. and I look forward to seeing you. I guess at lots of Welling uh, Orchestra Wellington mm. shows mm. will be will be when I'll probably next see you. Yeah, that's great. Well, it's been a uh, it's been a pleasure um, reflecting on some of these things, and it's triggered a, a, quite a number of other memories, which I'm not going to talk about now. <laughs> but, 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 but just things, you know, talking about all this, and it's been uh, done. Life's, life's been good. It's had its challenges. It, for all of us, life has mm. its challenges. Um, and it's not necessarily how you solve them, it's how you manage them. Mm. Sometimes they're unsolvable. How do you, how do you feel? I mean, you mentioned quite understandably. Um, a, I guess, a funk, a depression around mm. your wife um, dying, yes. uh, as would seem yes. a correct response for anyone. Um, but outside of that, you seem, and as I say, that's a, a completely understandable situation, you seem highly and forever motivated. So mm. what what do you feel has has enabled that and driven that for you? You know, why okay, Why I do t- you take on the things you t- do t- and t- then put an energy towards them? Yeah. I'll try not to analyse that too much and mm-hmm. just do it instinctively. I, I am eternally an optimist in the goodness of people. That's my answer. And it's the same, and if I apply that a little bit more to our country, mm. you know, I mean, we've got a great country, a fantastic country, but I'm no nationalist. 
and I never will be. Mm. And every day I wake up, either intentionally or so I'm in, um, um, not in the forefront of my mind, I'm, I'm becoming more global every day I wake up. Yes, my Māori heritage and my Welsh heritage, but if I concentrate on the Māori heritage, because this is the land of it, I don't live mm. in Wales, so mm. I'll just talk about that, is that, look, I, I have had wonderful uh, experiences and it's been uh, partly what's built me um, is my Māori heritage, but can I say quietly and gently, and I really want to stress those two words, in my world now there is no place for cultural chauvinism, and so I'm talking about the excesses and the extremes of cultural chauvinism of any culture, and when it manifests itself, cultural chauvinism, we end up with the Balkans War in our lifetime, 1990, 92, when a grouping of people within one land want to assert through murder and violence their superiority. I have no time for it. Um, I won't be part of it. Um, and while we live in ch- and we live in challenging times, particularly with the president of the USA, with these things, and it would be easy to get into a slagging discussion. I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to say extremely challenging, because the attempts are being made to turn the clock back and that isolationist fortress mentality, mm-hmm. you know. And yet I thought my father and my grandparents and that fought for in both world wars for, um, for particular outcomes, especially post-World War Two, where we tried to build relationships with other countries so that these things couldn't happen again and not have our little islands and this and that. Well, we live in islands all around the world, but not have that that isolationist thing, that thing of superiority, either subliminal or absolutely out there, you know, um, um, and we're seeing the absolute horrors of that taking place in Europe at the moment, in North Africa, um, and and how people are handling uh, what is a legitimate concern about immigration. There's a legitimacy to it, but it's the way it's being perverted mm-hmm. by those with other agendas and exploited, um, irrespective of whether the people are uh, you know, coming. Yeah, the term Im- immigration is being used to actually oh, exploit and get uh, power uh, to actually peddle a completely different. That's, absolutely, absolutely. Angle. Yeah, so yeah. your question, I come back to myself. I guess being um, being fortunate both actively pursuing and secondly accidentally taking on board things mm. I guess look I'm no uh, uh, while I did live through the hippie time I was a bit young for it but lived through that time and and, and I'm not trying to uh, proclaim sit here um, saying this is Nirvana or let's go and or let's get a bunch of us just go and live in a valley down in the South Island and forget the rest of the world and chickens and make our own bread and all the rest mm. of it and, and I'm not saying that sarcastically but I'm saying uh, I've learned that that's a, that, that that doesn't work either. By and large, it does mm. not work because mm. it ends up as a cult. That's mm. what happens with those things, and we've seen it in Guyana and Waco, Texas, and Gloria Vale, and up in Auckland. Uh, what's the name? What happened up there? Mm. Um, but I think you know, and there are standout people like Mandela, you know, and some of the great thinkers, and and um, and and. You know, I used to listen to uh, Voice from America, Alistair Cook. Mm-hmm. I used to listen to him a lot on the radio, uh, particularly before I was in council when he used to do a weekly chat show and thing. And 
and and I'm, I love reading. And my father left me um, a, a great legacy of books, um, and I've read a lot. And I guess part of the political animal in me is having these kind of talks with mates at dinner parties and or going along and listening to people who are giving a talk, even though I think. Oh, that person's incredibly right wing. Mm. Why would I want to go there? And I think no, 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 no. Let's just go and hear what they have to say. Mm. And um, and I guess taking on board that is the goodness. And I've been fortunate in my life that um, um, partly through oh, I don't think luck has a heck of a lot to do with things, to be honest. But through um, a little bit of luck, a little uh, and a lot of hard work and. And a lot of help from people, mm-hmm. a lot of help, especially from a lot of my aunties in terms of family stuff, you know, and my parents with books and reading, music, and then um, the experiences living overseas and um, seeing the good, the bad and the ugly. And while I think our country is a great place to be, there's, we've got work to do here. There's things that need to be put right here or worked on and to try and manage things better and child abuse is one of them. You know, and um, and poverty and stuff like that. But um, I'm I, I'm more optimist by the day uh, op, you know, uh, about things. Optimistic, should I say, by the day. And the more I see that the chance for our survival, our planetary survival, and the well-being of people. So not just the planet, but the well-being of all people on this planet is about cooperation, not confrontation. Sometimes things have to be confronted. But it shouldn't be the first call that's dialed up. Let's, con- let's confront, which is what's happening in the USA mm. at the moment, mm. and what's happening in Holland, in Poland, in Hungary, in Brexit. It goes on and on. All that stuff that we, our, our parents and grandparents did after World War Two. We're going to cooperate. We're going to have the European Union. We're going to have this. We're going to have that. America's not going to have this isolationist thing. No, bugger the rest of the world. Excuse my language. The rest of the world. Um, you know, and now this thing, we're going to make America great. It's all about America, America first. Mm. Uh, it's a problem. And we're trying to, all trying to grapple with it at the moment. So, no, life is, uh, life is good, even with its challenges. Life is good. And, uh, and um, I, um, I look forward to what remains of it, of uh, having a bit of fun, trying to be helpful, and um, having a bit of downtime. And getting back on the stage as well, though. Yes. It's going to happen, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yeah. It is. And um, so, anyway, I'll let you know yeah, yeah. things I'll tell you. If you've okay. got that thing, I'll All right, I'll turn, the, I'll turn this off and you can give me the real story.